In the early 90s, Knoxville authorities found evidence of their first serial killer ever. In a small patch of woods off Cahaba Lane, bodies were piling up. Local sex workers were familiar with this suspect far before police. They called him Zoo Man. He'd offer to pay double for their services, then drive to a dead-end road or an abandoned barn and brutalize them. Survivors managed to escape or talk their way out of it. But for those who didn't, there wasn't an uproar in the community about their disappearances because Thomas D. Husky targeted a vulnerable group of women and he took pleasure in discarding their bodies like trash. Even decades later, Husky will tell you it wasn't him. It was Kyle, his evil, violent, murderous, alternate identity that wanted to get him in trouble. If you ask Kyle, however, he'll go into detail about how he brutalized each one of his victims. In late February of 1992, a young woman walked into a Knoxville business looking for help. She called police, and when they arrived, she told them a shocking story. She claimed a man had abducted her in the city, then driven her to a secluded area where she was bound, raped, and robbed. The man had also threatened to shoot her, but didn't reveal a gun. Investigator Tom Presley would later learn that this abduction part of the story was a lie, but if the woman had been forthcoming about the fact that she was a sex worker, police probably would not have taken her seriously, and she'd be admitting to breaking the law. Fortunately, Presley took this woman seriously and decided to look into it, so he follows this woman to a secluded area off Cahaba Lane in East Knox County. This patch of woods was the prime destination for illegal activity, it was littered with mattresses, trash, used condoms, and this was primarily where local sex workers took their clients. When Presley reaches the dead end of this road leading into the woods, the woman points out that her attacker's car is still there, so she and the investigator get out and venture into the woods. The woman eventually comes upon her belongings that she had to leave behind when she was attacked, and to Presley's shock, he literally sees the attacker in the act of committing another rape. He recalled, quote, he had this other little girl naked and on her knees. Two rapes in one day, one of which was literally caught in the act by police. That never happens. Presley immediately draws his weapon and takes the 31-year-old man into custody. And that man is Thomas D. Husky. Husky was charged with two counts of rape and one count of robbery for stealing one of his victim's wallets. Not only did he confess to the attacks, he also admitted to committing more. This was clearly a man posing a serious danger to the community. But even with a confession, prosecutors couldn't put him behind bars. Neither of the victims agreed to testify and therefore the case was dropped. Presley stated, quote, you don't catch a rapist in the act. That's almost unheard of. He said he had done two others like that, but he denied the two other cases I suspected him of. If authorities had dug into Thomas Husky's past, they might have learned that he is much more dangerous than they had previously believed and pursued him further. But nothing could have prepared them for what was to come in the fall of that year. The bodies of four young women off Cahaba Lane, the same patch of woods Thomas had been arrested eight months prior. This appeared to be the work of one deranged serial killer. All of the bodies were less than a few hundred yards away from one another. 
A hunter discovered the first body on October 20th, 1992, a 32-year-old white female hidden under a mattress, Patricia Rose Anderson, who went by Patty. Patty's boyfriend reported her missing 12 days prior and also informed her father, James, about the pregnancy. It turns out that Patty was two months pregnant at the time of her death. Patty was born on May 9th, 1961 in London, where James was stationed in the U.S. Air Force. The family eventually settled in Lewisburg, Tennessee, a town with less than 10,000 people at the time. Moving from a European city with millions of people to a small town in the American South is jarring for anyone. Patty attended Marshall County High until her sophomore year, when at the age of 16, she ran away and dropped out. Her father recalled, quote, She got unruly just fighting authority and just left and moved in with a girl up in Knoxville. James had been concerned about his daughter's safety for some time. He said Patty hung out with some rough people, but that she truly cared about them and would walk a hundred miles for her friends. When he heard the news of his daughter's death, he said it was, quote, like somebody hit me in the middle of the chest with a sledgehammer. Patty's lengthy criminal record caused her to become close to Lynn Davis, her bail bondsman of over 13 years. He said she always paid her bills on time, showed up to court, and always carried a photo of her children, her 10-year-old son and three-year-old daughter. After Lynn made some creepy comments about Patty's beauty and speculating that she made, quote, more than most of the girls on the street, Lynn recalled his encounter with Patty to the newspaper about two weeks before her murder. He claimed that Patty had called him up asking for a ride to court. When he picked her up at the day's end, Patty said she had a problem. She was pregnant and working to save up enough money to get an abortion. The state of Tennessee had 33 abortion clinics in 1992. Today, there are just four. And because Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion is now illegal from fertilization. When investigator Presley saw the news about Patty's murder, he immediately called East Knox County police and told them, I think I know who your killer is. Investigators didn't have enough evidence to arrest Thomas D. Husky for Patty's murder, but they did find an outstanding warrant for soliciting a sex worker. On October 22nd, Knox County Sheriff's Detective Michael Upchurch and Sevier County officers arrived in a mobile home in Pigeon Forge. Officers claimed that Husky's mother answered the door and then invited them inside, while Husky's mother claims that she simply answered the door and then went to go get her son. Either way, the officers made it inside. So officers tell Husky they have a warrant for his arrest. He responds, fine, I need to get my shoes. Detective Upchurch tells him that's fine, but the officers need to accompany him to his room because he's currently in custody and they want to make sure he's not going to get a weapon. Husky agrees and proceeds to his room. While standing in the doorway, Upchurch spotted an orange hay-baling rope on the floor, similar to the rope that bound Patty's wrists. He then shined a light on the dresser, illuminating a pair of women's earrings and a necklace. Just a day prior, Patty's boyfriend had told Upchurch that a pair of earrings had been inside her purse. Thomas Husky denied officers consent to search and then was taken to jail. The following morning, Husky was transported to the Knox County Jail, and Upchurch worked on getting a search warrant for his room. Because even if Husky's parents consented to the search, they couldn't give police permission to search Husky's room. 
At the time, Upchurch had only written a few search warrants and claimed he wasn't familiar with Rule 41, which details unlawful search and seizure. The warrant had been signed by a city judicial commissioner who did not have the authority to authorize a search. They also failed to put the name of the officer in which it was issued to. This could not be written off as a simple mistake. This was a monumental failure by authorities, and it would bite them in the ass much later down the line. While Detective Upchurch is bagging up the earrings he found on Husky's dresser, he finds a blonde hair intertwined with the jewelry, similar to the long blonde hair on Patty Anderson. In addition to the rope, they also found a knife on his bathroom sink. After less than two days in jail, Thomas Husky pleaded guilty to solicitation of a sex worker. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail. He signed his name as Kyle Husky, instead of his legal name, Thomas Husky. When authorities interviewed more sex workers in the area that had encountered Thomas, they learned his nickname among them for several reasons was Zoo Man. Thomas Husky worked at the Knoxville Zoo for two years as an elephant keeper until November of 1990, when they fired him for abusing the animals. At the age of 16 in 1977, Thomas broke into a home on the zoo's grounds to steal money. Because he was a juvenile at the time, Thomas got off pretty easy. He was examined by a psychologist who would later claim that he believed Thomas was suffering from a brain disorder at the time. His pattern of committing crimes near this zoo didn't stop there. In addition to the woods off Cahaba Lane, he'd take his victims to a livestock barn that had recently caught fire near the zoo. He'd tie them up, beat them, and steal all their cash before fleeing. Sometimes he'd take their clothes, too, and throw them out as he drove away. His latest attack at the livestock barn that police knew of was just four weeks prior to his arrest. When Thomas D. Husky was confronted with all of this incriminating evidence, he chose to stay silent and get an attorney. A smart move for him, because six days after Patty Anderson's body was found, the bodies of two young black women were discovered a short distance away. 31-year-old Patricia Johnson had moved to Knoxville roughly five months ago. It's presumed that she was a sex worker because of two previous arrests in Chattanooga. She was last spotted at the Volunteers of America shelter, and local authorities were able to quickly identify her because of a recent disorderly conduct charge. Unfortunately, the only picture I could find of Patricia was a mugshot printed in the newspaper, and it seems like none of her family or friends were interviewed, so we don't know much about her other than her criminal history. Within hours of discovering Patricia Johnson's body, the body of an unknown black female was found as well. 22-year-old Darlene Smith was the last victim to be identified due to the severe rate of decomposition. Dr. William Bass, head of anthropology at the University of Tennessee, determined she'd been dead for 10 to 20 days before she was found, and that a bone in her neck had been broken in such a way that indicated her killer used two hands to strangle her. Darlene was the only victim without a criminal record who wasn't doing sex work, according to her sister, Shirley Smith. The last time she saw her sister on October 10th, Darlene was upset about an argument with her boyfriend. Shirley thinks it's possible that her sister's killer may have mistaken her for a sex worker because, quote, My sister loved to go out. She had that teenage instinct, going out and having fun. 
She was the type of person who was very hard to understand, but once you knew her, you would love her to death. Shirley also theorized that the person who killed the other victims may have been different from Darlene's killer. Quote, she may have met someone and trusted him. She may have just gotten in the car with the wrong person. When Darlene's body was found on October 26th, Shirley began having dreams of her sister every night until she was identified. In every dream, Shirley would awake to her name being called. She would get out of bed and see Darlene standing outside in the rain. I tell her, Darlene, don't you know everyone's been looking for you? And she says, yes, I know. I'm just coming back so I can clear everything up. On October 27th, the following day, the skeletal remains of the fourth and final victim were discovered in a nearby creek. A 30-year-old white female, later identified as Susan East Stone. It's believed she was the first of the four women to be killed, with her time of death being roughly four to eight weeks prior. An examination of her bones revealed that she received a violent blow to her left shoulder blade, which could have been caused by a heavy boot or a blunt object like a baseball bat or a 2 by 4 This blow alone would not have caused Susan's death, a mystery that would trouble investigators for years to come. Susan's mother told reporters she might still be alive only if she had been jailed for her crimes. Susan reportedly married a Florida drug dealer in 1985, and from there, the drug use and sex work began. They divorced in 1988, and the man was awarded custody of their two children. In 1990, Susan started working as a data control clerk for a Knoxville firm. She was fired four months prior to her murder for non-performance. Like Patty Anderson, Susan also had a very close relationship with her bail bondsman, who said her drug addiction was her own worst enemy and what led to her downfall. At one point, the bail bondsman told Susan she could do better, only for Susan to respond, I'm doing the best I can. The day before Halloween, the Knoxville News Sentinel printed an interview with a woman who says she survived a near-deadly encounter with Thomas D. Husky, and I'm going to read a portion of that article. Fear walks the streets side by side with the working ladies. For one of them, Anna, that stark fear has an extra measure of reality. She says she survived a sadistic encounter with a zoo man, the street name for a suspect in the death of one of four women whose bodies have been discovered in a wooded area off Cahaba Lane. Anna is a thin, 30-year-old woman with brown hair and eyes. She has a cute, impish smile, a small child, and a cocaine habit that had cost her up to $1,000 per week. She agreed to tell her story if her real name was not used. About seven weeks ago, she said, she went with a customer, whom she later identified to police as Thomas D. Husky, to Cahaba Lane. There, instead of following their prior agreement of money for oral and straight sex, he tied her hands behind her back and beat and raped her she said. Quote, he performed every kind of sex on me that I ever thought of or even heard of. She said he called her vulgar names, everything you could think of, and punched her in the ribs. He made it very plain that he liked to be in control. Quote, he kept telling me that if I didn't fight, I wouldn't be hurt. But I was. I was hurt. Anna said she met Husky on a Sunday afternoon, at a time when she was not particularly looking for customers. He just came up to me and started talking and asked me if I was working. I told him, not really. He was friendly and persistent, and, she said, he offered a good bit more money than she usually charges. 
When he offered me $75, that changed my mind, from not working to working real quick, she said. I usually get about $40 for what he said he wanted. Anna said he told her he wanted to get out of the city to feel more secure, because he had previously been busted for soliciting prostitutes in town. He was very friendly, personable, intelligent. He seemed to know one of my friends. He really put me at ease. Anna said he drove directly to the Cahaba Lane area. Once in the woods, among old mattresses and strewn debris, he told her to take off her clothes. She did. Then she said he told her, lay on your stomach and put your hands behind your back. When she hesitated for a second, his voice barked out the order, just do it. I started crying. I just knew what to do. I'm married to a man who is very violent. I know when to shut up and not to fight. He tied her hands with a piece of rope and began raping her, she said. Afterward, he casually indicated he might kill her because she could identify him to police. Anna said she promised him she would not be going to police. She told him she had been raped before, and that when she tried to report it, the police laughed at her, because she was a prostitute. The last words he said to me were, If you do, I may go to prison, but you'll go to the graveyard. Before he left, he took about $115 from her. She freed herself, put her clothes on, and found her way to a store, where she called a friend for help. Anna stated that she and the other sex workers in town were scared, but most women had to continue working to survive. Quote, Basically, you just try to stay in town and not go off in the middle of nowhere. Still, you always take that big chance every time you get into the car with someone. The interview ends with Anna being asked if she was going to continue working. She responded tearfully with, quote, I want out of this, but I'm trapped, and I don't know how to get out. I would give 10 years of my life if I could just find a way out. In mid-November, a grand jury indicted Thomas Husky on 23 counts relating to the attacks of four women between August 1991 and October 1992. It included five counts of aggravated rape, two of rape, two of especially aggravated kidnapping, 11 of aggravated kidnapping, two of aggravated robbery, and one of robbery. None of these charges were related to the four women found deceased off Cahaba Lane, and even the sheriff stated at the time that he wasn't really sure if all of the killings were related. Thomas was also a suspect in two other unsolved rapes, one involving a tourist from Germany who was picked up from a bus stop on Magnolia Ave. Apparently, this street was a hotspot for sex workers looking for clients, and where Thomas Husky liked to prowl. The German woman ended up accepting a ride from a man who agreed to take her to Gatlinburg. He took her to Cade's Cove instead, where she was eventually bound and raped. For the conviction of soliciting a sex worker, Thomas was set to be released the first week of November. But with this new lengthy list of charges, his bond was raised to nearly half a million dollars. Meanwhile, investigators, volunteers, and students continued scouring the woods off Cahaba Lane, searching for potential evidence and possibly more victims. Roughly 40 people searched over 182,000 square feet, and they were so thorough they managed to collect 27 cents, but no sign of more human remains. One investigator speculated that it's possible that none of these women's bodies would have been found if it weren't for the fact that the killer was getting lazy. A pattern indicated that whoever was killing these women 
was getting tired of dragging their body deeper into the woods. Patty Anderson, who was first to be found but believed to be the last victim, was discovered just 20 yards from the road. It's believed that Susan Stone was killed first, and her body was found deepest of them all, about 400 yards southeast of Patty's. Six months after the slayings in April of 1993, authorities presented their case to a grand jury and a warrant was finally made public that revealed items seized from his home. In addition to finding rope on Thomas's floor, it was also found on his dresser, under his bed, in and around his truck, as well as an outside storage shed. Officers also seized 14 Polaroids and 55 other photographs, pearl earrings and a rhinestone necklace, believed to be Patty Anderson's with a hair attached, a paper napkin with telephone numbers, an envelope with red or brown hair and Polaroids, a letter, traffic ticket, and three pairs of jeans. They also listed bed linens, blankets, two pipes, a tobacco box, 14 pornographic magazines, five newsprint advertisements for pornographic material, a green notebook, wire cutters, and a pocket knife. On June 2nd, Thomas D. Husky was indicted on four counts of first-degree murder. In a press conference that day, the sheriff said, Zoo Man is a brutal person, and quote, definitely a serial killer, the first one we have encountered here in Knox County. They also revealed that Husky had been in as many as 35 states since 1985, from the West Coast all the way to the Northeast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Five months later, a woman came forward to police about a disturbing encounter, and this encounter kind of added a shred of doubt to their current investigation. The 31-year-old woman said she was at a fast food restaurant on Magnolia Ave around 11 p.m. when she accepted a ride home. The man said he would take her home after stopping by his residence, but ended up driving them to the woods off Cahaba Lane instead. There, he demanded sex and when the woman refused, he sexually assaulted her. When she jumped out of the vehicle and ran, the man tried to run her over with his car before fleeing. This story was eerily similar to the zoo man's victims, but Thomas Husky was behind bars when this took place, and this suspect was a short black man who used the name James. The first of six trials against Thomas D. Husky took place in October of 1995, three years after the killings. A jury convicted him of robbery and rape after three days of testimony by the 30-year-old survivor. That same week, District Attorney General Randy Nichols, who was trying all of the cases, withdrew the state's previous offer to let Husky plead guilty. The state was seeking the death penalty in the upcoming murder trial. 
and it's pretty common for them to offer a deal in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. Presumably, the state offered to remove the death penalty if Thomas pleaded guilty to all the murders and rapes. It's unclear why the state withdrew their offer, but the defense moved for a mistrial immediately and without success. The fact that the state withdrew this offer to remove the death penalty and have Thomas plead guilty would be heavily criticized in years to come. By February of 1996, court hearings revealed key issues brought up by the defense. First, they wanted the trial to be moved out of Knox County, citing the vast media coverage and the inhuman nickname, Zoo Man. Second, they wanted to suppress the evidence taken from Husky's home in October 1992 and argued that the search warrant used to take those items was invalid. And third, the judge had to decide if the statements Thomas made to police were taken legally or if detectives failed to honor his constitutional rights. District Attorney Nichols wanted to use four of the statements he made during interviews in November of 1992. According to Nichols, Husky was completely silent when authorities first arrested him the month prior, but when investigators served him with an indictment weeks later, Husky's demeanor completely changed. Nichols said he witnessed Husky bend over, face the floor, and then raise up with a strange look on his face. That's when Husky told investigators, give me a cigarette and I'll tell you everything you want to know. I'm Kyle, and I hate Tommy. Thomas also went by Tommy, by the way. In that moment, Thomas D. Husky not only became the first alleged serial killer in Knoxville, but also the first person in East Tennessee to claim he suffers from a multiple personality disorder that led to murder. Now known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, the mental health condition is a severe form of disassociation that produces a lack of connection in a person's thoughts. People with DID are described as experiencing separate identities that function independently of each other and are autonomous of each other. As of this year, about 1.5% of the global population has been diagnosed with DID. The International Society for the Study of Trauma and Disassociation describes alternate identities, or alters, as independent identities which have their own distinct behaviors, have memories that are distinct from others, and even may differ in language and expressions used. Signs of a switch to an altered state include trance-like behavior, eye-blinking, eye-rolling, and changes in posture. As soon as Husky revealed this to authorities, his defense hired renowned forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Sadoff, who interviewed Husky seven times over the past four years. Dr. Sadoff spoke with the true killer, an alternate who described himself as Kyle, as well as Husky's other identities, a gay man named Timothy, and an Australian man named Sir Reginald Philip Dax. In a report to the court, Dr. Sadoff observed, quote, he states he can come in or go out of consciousness whenever he wants, and basically he wants Tom to be in trouble. Kyle states he is afraid of Thomas because Thomas is trying to get rid of Kyle or kill him. Kyle describes Thomas as being good, and Kyle as pure evil. It presented a legal issue the state had never seen before, and there was a lot of bitter back and forth between the attorneys and the judge on how to handle it. Husky's lead defense lawyer even made a motion and said that each of Thomas Husky's personalities should be appointed their own lawyer. 
Whether or not the diagnosis was a facade, Thomas Husky was clearly trying to separate himself from the man arrested in October of 1992. Side-by-side images of him just three years apart could be mistaken as completely different men. A mugshot from 92 shows Husky with mid-length shaggy hair, bushy eyebrows, and an untrimmed beard down to his Adam's apple. Pictures from court appearances in 96 show him 50 pounds heavier, clean-shaven, hair slicked back, and I kid you not, this man started waxing or plucking his eyebrows. They were clearly much, much thinner and unnatural-looking. So back to Dr. Sadoff's observations of Thomas Husky. He concluded that Husky's DID stemmed from childhood abuse. And just so it's clear, all of these wild stories come from Thomas Husky himself and were never, ever actually verified in any way. Dr. Sadoff wrote that Husky was abused by a woman named Connie, who introduced him to sex acts and then threatened him harm if he didn't comply with her demands. His delusions started with an imaginary friend named Jericho, and by the time he reached his 20s, Husky was suffering blackouts. Dr. Sadoff wrote the distinctions between Kyle and Thomas were clear. Kyle cursed often and wrote with his right hand, while Thomas was quiet-mannered and wrote with his left. In the latest interview from October 1995, he speculated that Husky's numerous personalities appeared to be merging back into a single person, with no signs of Kyle. It was only during pre-trial hearings several months later that both the state and defense would review a waiver Husky signed in October of 92. Husky had signed his name as Kyle weeks before he confessed to investigators. No one had noticed for the past three years. The details of Husky's confessions were revealed on Valentine's Day, 1996. An investigator testified that Husky admitted to killing four women, three of which he picked up near Magnolia Ave, all of which were bound before being murdered except Susan Stone. Husky said he never tied up Susan Stone, but admitted to choking her to death. This was the victim that authorities could never officially determine a cause of death. And Husky made these confessions about the murders to investigators while he was Kyle, not Thomas. One lieutenant once involved with the case said he could always tell when he was getting ready to talk to Husky's alternate, Kyle. Quote, he would go through this Hulk routine, grabbing his head, spitting, howling, and cursing as Kyle apparently took control. In late May of 1996, Thomas Husky finally went on trial for the rape and robbery of four different women. For the first time in Knox County history, the jury was selected in Hamilton County, Chattanooga, and sequestered here to try the case. Despite prosecutor Randy Nichols botching the timeline of when these women were attacked and the fact that it conflicted with their testimony, fortunately the jury chose to believe these three victims, but they deadlocked on the fourth. All in all, Husky was convicted of seven rape counts, two kidnapping counts, and one robbery. He was acquitted of one rape. All of the women's stories were similar. They were sex workers, picked up by Husky along Magnolia Ave or the Gay Street Viaduct. They thought Zoo Man was a regular customer, but instead they were driven to Cahaba Lane, or a barn near the Knoxville Zoo, where Husky suddenly became violent, raped, and robbed them. One victim testified that in August of 1991, Husky told her, quote, I'm going to kill all you pretty bitches, all you whores. 
A few days after the conclusion of this trial, prosecutors dropped three charges against Husky. It included the charge that the jury deadlocked on previously and the case that led to Husky's arrest the first time, where an officer literally caught him in the act in February of 92. Prosecutors were trying to bring those charges again, but again, the victim in this situation would not testify. On July 8th, 1996, the judge handed down Husky's last sentence relating to the rape cases. On top of the 22-year sentence for a previous conviction, the judge ordered Husky to spend another 44 years in prison, 66 years in total. Judge Richard Baumgartner noted that Husky was exceptionally cruel to women, and quote, for whatever demented reason, this apparently gave Husky pleasure, and it caused him excitement. Nearly three years pass before a significant ruling comes in preparation for Thomas D. Husky's murder trial. In December of 1998, the defense was making a critical argument for their case. They were again trying to get Husky's confessions to authorities thrown out, but not for the previous reason, which was turned down, in which they argued that the officers were basically harassing Thomas Husky after he had already asked for a lawyer. This time, the defense was saying that Thomas Husky was not mentally capable of making a statement of his own free will due to his DID. Knoxville clinical psychologist Diana McCoy testified for the defense after interviewing Husky numerous times. She testified that investigators, quote, took advantage of a situation where a man manifested abnormal behavior. And she said that some of his admissions could be straight up lies. McCoy also tried to prove to the judge that Husky suffered from DID. She testified that Husky had been raped as a child by police officers and recruited as a teen by a teacher to work in a local sex ring. The full story, according to Husky and the three psychologists who evaluated him, is disturbing. Husky claimed that a substitute teacher named Connie or Charlotte recruited him into a prostitution ring in the mid-1970s when he was a teenager at Park Junior High School in Knoxville. He said this teacher gave him gifts and attention. He claimed he was hired to help women engage in their sadomasochistic fantasies. Sometimes the teacher sent him to have sex with male clients. And one time, the teacher arranged for him to be gang-raped by a group of men, including an officer known as Sergeant Blackie. Again, none of these stories were ever proved in any shape or form as factual. McCoy wrote of her observations, quote, For a while after this, he mainly had sex with men for money, reportedly now being too old for the women who had formerly paid for his services. And it was during all of this that the teacher allegedly gave Husky code names, such as Kyle and Timmy, to match the personalities he was supposed to switch between depending on what the customer wanted. The same quote-unquote identities Husky would claim to have decades later, one of which went into detail about the killings to investigators. McCoy wrote that this Kyle alternate not only admitted to the killings, but admitted to making statements to police that weren't truthful, and only did so because he thought that's what police wanted to hear so they could implicate Thomas. On the other side of the table, the state was arguing that Husky's mental illness was all a charade to avoid the death penalty for his crimes. Prosecutor Nichols suggested that he got the idea from the daytime soap opera Days of Our Lives. 
Even Husky's own mother testified in pre-trial motions that she'd never seen him assume these alternate identities or call himself these names. She testified, quote, his name is Thomas and I call him Tom. That's it. All of these elaborate stories about the sex ring and the rape and the childhood abuse were coming from Husky himself and his lawyers couldn't find any witnesses to corroborate these claims. A month later, the judge finally made a ruling. He wrote that there was no evidence of investigators coercing Husky into confessing and ruled that the statements could be submitted to a jury for consideration at trial. This was a huge win for the prosecution. Twelve women and four men from Davidson County were selected as jurors, with the first day of trial taking place on January 26, 1999, nearly seven years after Thomas Husky was first arrested. After opening statements, jurors heard the state's strongest evidence, Husky's own confessions. Because I don't have access to these tapes, I can only read what was summarized by a journalist who watched the trial. Quote, In the tape recordings made in November 1992, Husky, or a purported evil alter ego, described how he picked up his four victims on Knoxville streets drove them to a remote dead-end road in East Knox County, forced several to have sex, and then strangled them. Husky, or Kyle as he demanded to be called, remembered shoving one victim's body under a mattress and taking a pair of earrings and a necklace from her purse. He said his last victim was a tall, thin black woman whom he described as ugly. This is a quote from Husky's confession about Patricia Johnson. She got scared and started having some kind of seizure on the ground, just bopping all over the place. The judge ordered the tape to be stopped after a few moments were played that were restricted from being heard by the jury. That moment was an investigator asking Husky to talk about his claim of raping over a dozen women. The judge had specifically ruled that information about Husky's former rape convictions could not be heard by the jury. The defense, of course, argued that the jury was now tainted and moved for a mistrial. The judge ultimately decided just to tell jurors to disregard those statements that they heard. It was the job of District Attorney Randy Nichols to ensure that this tape was properly redacted, and he apologized to the judge. On day two of the trial, prosecutors called a former jailmate of Husky to testify, 43-year-old William Fletcher, a truck driver who kept detailed notes of about 10 conversations he had with the zoo man in the fall of 1992. Husky reportedly told Fletcher that he had to kill the four women because two sex workers had previously falsely accused him of crimes, and he wanted to make sure it never happened again. Fletcher told the jury, quote, He told me he was going to play crazy and act like he had blackouts because he knew they didn't give the electric chair to crazy people. He then read a passage from his notes, taken on October 29th, 1992. Fletcher wrote, quote, He asked me today for a good lawyer to represent him in exchange for the book and movie rights to this case. Fletcher also testified that he'd never heard Husky refer to himself as Kyle or any other alternate. On day three of the trial, two women testified about their brutal experiences with the zoo man. A 31-year-old woman told the jury he bound her hands in February of 92 and forced himself on her in the woods before driving away. 
A 32-year-old woman testified that Husky struck her in the face and tried to force her into the woods by a mattress in early October of 92. The woman said, quote, I was pleading, please, 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 I'll do what you want. Whatever you want me to do, you can do right here. Detective Lieutenant Larry Johnson, a 30-year veteran on the force, was also called to testify about confessions he recorded from Husky. He told the jury that Husky gave statements about the crime that only the killer would know. On cross-examination, the defense brought up court papers about Patricia Johnson. The document states that she was murdered on or about October 24th, a time when Husky had already been in jail for two days. That date was later corrected, but the defense was highlighting the error to jurors to make it appear as if the investigators were lackluster. On February 2nd, after the state rested their case, the defense called numerous witnesses that encountered one or more of Husky's alternates. One nurse said she encountered an alternate named Jericho five years ago, after Husky was injured in a fight with another inmate. The woman said that Jericho was remorseful about stopping Husky from defending himself. A second nurse encountered Jericho five months before the trial. Husky requested the nurse then asked to be handcuffed and complained that he couldn't live in filth. After he was handcuffed, Husky slumped to the floor and said, This is quite fine. I'm in complete control of Thomas's body. When the nurse asked him to identify himself, Husky suddenly assumed a vague British accent and said his name was Jericho. The same Jericho that presented himself five years prior with no British accent, and who was also apparently the name of his imaginary friend in childhood. Forensic pathologist Dr. Joseph L. Burton also testified for the defense that day. He told the jury there was no evidence to support the claims that Husky manually strangled his victims. The defense also wanted to question the boyfriend of Susan Stone on the witness stand. He was originally a suspect in her murder, but eventually ruled out. Unfortunately for the defense, this man's public defender told him not to testify so he wouldn't incriminate himself, and the judge could not compel him to testify. The following day, testimony by Dr. Diana McCoy took up most of the day. She estimated that her sessions with Husky totaled over 50 hours. The defense's argument up until Dr. McCoy took the stand was that Husky admitted to murders he did not commit. However, that changed when Dr. McCoy testified to the jury that Husky did murder these four women, but he was insane when he did so. On cross-examination, she acknowledged that Husky had told her many elaborate stories. One of those stories was Husky taking a trip in his youth, which led him to participate in a satanic ritual involving a goat and the drinking of blood. All in all, the jury heard that Dr. McCoy was convinced that Husky suffers from DID. Another expert in the field backed these claims the following day and also revealed moments from Husky's childhood. Dr. Jeffrey Erickson met him in 1977, when Husky was just 16 years old. And this was from the incident in which Husky broke into a house on the zoo's grounds. Apparently, Husky's childhood was closely tied to the Knoxville Zoo because his father worked there for years. 
Looking back over his report, Dr. Erickson told the jury that Husky's parents, who were, quote, old and tired looking, appeared to love their only child. The Husky family apparently lived above the zoo's monkey house before moving to another home on the zoo's grounds. Husky told Erickson that his parents loved him too much and were overprotective. At 16, he considered himself a loner and wanted to live in the woods like Grizzly Adams. Dr. Erickson diagnosed Husky as a schizoid with a touch of paranoia and wrote that outpatient therapy could help. He only met with Husky a few more times before the visits abruptly stopped a few months later. At no time did Thomas Husky mention the alleged sex ring he was recruited into, or any alleged abuse he suffered as a child. His only complaint was that his parents loved him too much and were overprotective. After two weeks of back and forth, both sides gave their closing arguments. The state called Husky a vile, evil, and mean-spirited man that was faking an illness to get away with murder. The prosecutor stated, quote, We know, Mr. Husky, that this is a lot of hogwash. We know it didn't work. You're guilty of murder. You killed all four of them. You did it for your pleasure. In the defense's closing, they reminded jurors that numerous professionals had diagnosed Husky with DID and that the state's case relied on poor physical evidence and the rantings of their insane client. One of his lawyers stated, quote, If the evidence doesn't fit, you must acquit. Please don't believe the unbelievable. The jury deliberated for five days before signaling to the judge that they couldn't reach a decision. All of the jurors agreed that Thomas Husky suffered from some form of mental illness, but they couldn't agree on whether or not he was guilty. Six jurors believed that Husky should be held responsible for his crimes, while the other six believed he was legally insane. After nearly seven years of investigating and pulling this all together, and three weeks of a trial, the jury deadlocked, forcing the judge to declare a mistrial. After the jury left, Husky was photographed hugging his two sons and his parents. Susan Stone's sister was the only family member of a victim who could be present that day. She told reporters, quote, I thought the evidence was overwhelming and they should come back with first-degree murder and a sane verdict. Childhood friends of Husky were interviewed that same day. One of them recalled an incident in which a 13-year-old Husky set fire to a stray cat, killing it. They said Husky was mentally deranged, had few friends, and was often picked on by fellow classmates. One friend recalled an incident in sixth grade when Husky was beat up in broad daylight. Quote, he literally beat him right there in front of the fire hall. I remember it because we always used to get jawbreakers and stuff from the firemen after school. These firemen wouldn't do nothing. There was always a big crowd around a fight, and these firemen wouldn't do nothing. When these friends were asked about the alleged sex trafficking ring and this substitute teacher that supposedly recruited Husky, the friends said there was never such a thing because that would have been a big deal and they would have heard about it from Husky or anyone else. They also couldn't recall a substitute teacher named Connie Flagg 
working at the school ever. This is the name that Husky gave as the teacher who recruited him into the ring. Husky also claimed this woman was working for a man named Gil. Those names did jog a memory for the friends though. It matched the names of several streets around Husky's school and home. One of Husky's old addresses was on Flag Avenue. Gill Avenue was just a few blocks up from his junior high, and Kyle Street was just a few blocks from his elementary school. So where did the name Connie come from? Well, at the age of 10, one of Husky's childhood friends was killed in a car accident, and that friend had a sister named Connie. Unfortunately, none of those facts made it back to the jury, but perhaps it wouldn't have made a difference because Husky had several professionals backing his claims of DID. This was a huge loss for the prosecutors, the state, and the victim and their family members, but prosecutors said they would try the case again and do better next time. But three years later, their attempt would be thwarted by the same judge who oversaw the previous murder trial. The judge ruled that the strongest evidence the state had against Thomas Husky could not be used against him in trial. This included his own confessions recorded by investigators in November of 1992, and the evidence found in and around his bedroom that tied him to the victims. The judge said this ruling was inescapable because Husky's rights had been violated. And it's not like all of a sudden the judge was changing his mind three years later. This was all coming from an appellate court. That evidence was previously allowed in trial because the judge believed the items were lawfully seized, but the appellate court ruled that the warrant used to arrest Husky in the rape case was unlawful because the warrant was signed by a city court clerk, not a judge. As for Husky's confessions, the appellate court also ruled in favor of the defense. Investigators spoke with Husky about the murders on October 29th and 30th, 1992, and continued to visit him and chat about the murders, despite Husky invoking his right to silence. This is what the court said. The court concludes that the state has failed to meet its burden, to show that the defendant's rights were scrupulously honored. Despite two invocations, Investigators continued to approach the defendant and either interrogated him directly or attempted to endear themselves to the defendant in hopes that he would discuss the investigations. In light of these new facts, the court cannot conclude that these statements were voluntary and self-initiated and not the product of repeated efforts to wear down the defendant's resistance and make him change his mind. In late 2005, the state Supreme Court ruled to let that decision stand. This meant that the chances of bringing another murder trial against Husky were null, and the judge was technically ordered to dismiss the case against him entirely. But prosecutor Randy Nichols wasn't ready to quit. He told reporters, quote, He killed more people than anybody in the history of this county. I'm going to do my best to try to put a case together. Can I weave a web of circumstantial evidence? I'm going to make every effort. Those efforts, if any were actually made, were in vain because the judge was forced to dismiss the charges. Despite his own recorded confessions, Thomas D. Husky will never be convicted for the murders of four women, Patricia Anderson, Patricia Johnson, Darlene Smith, and Susan Stone. On the bright side though, Husky will likely never see another day of freedom. His most recent chance at parole was declined in 2009. 
he's eligible for release from the South Central Correctional Center in June of 2041. Thomas Husky, or Zooman, or Kyle, will be 81 years old, if he's still alive. <laughs> 